Welcome to The Marketing Mix, where I talk to the smartest people I know in the world of business-to-business marketing and sales. We find out what makes these folks tick, how they stay ahead of the curve, and what trends they're keeping an eye on right now. I'm your host, Steve Cummins. I've built and run marketing teams at a number of tech companies, from Fortune 500 to fast-growth startups. And I found one of the best places to learn is from talking to people who are out there getting stuff done, people who are in the mix. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Karpiuk, who is Growth Marketing Manager at Airtame, uh, also someone who I've always found has uh, interesting viewpoints on whatever we want to talk about on marketing. So, Charlie, no pressure. I've just told everybody you're going to have something interesting to say. Um, so before we dig in, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background and tell us how you got to where you are in the world of marketing. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. And uh yeah, a little bit about me. Um, I am a growth marketer at uh, or the growth marketing manager at Airtame currently. Uh, and growth marketing, I think, uh, has a lot of different definitions. So we can probably dig into that. But um, I've been a marketing professional now for 12 years. Uh, I guess you could call it professional. Um, and <laughs> uh, my, my background varies uh, greatly. I, I think um, many people would probably not consider me normal. Uh, I also don't consider myself normal and uh, maybe in a good way. <clears throat> uh, but uh, yeah, so touching on that, uh, you know, very diverse background started really uh, from DJing um, and promoting uh, different shows. I think that uh, that any sort of uh, music promotion is a crash course into marketing. Um, you really have to get out there and find ways to bring as many people to your shows as possible. And to do so, you can't do it all one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, nobody's going to listen to you and you have to find a way to uh, get out to the masses and persuade them to come. So that's where it all started, I think, uh, is, you know, and I, I remember um, once asking someone who was a director or a VP of marketing uh, when I was in college and I had no idea. I was like, what's the difference between marketing and sales? And he was like, well, basically marketing is low touch. We, we go after all, uh, the many uh, and sales goes after the few. I said, okay, that sort of makes sense, but really they're trying to do the same thing. Um, so I, you know, I didn't go to school uh, for marketing necessarily. Um, I studied English and philosophy uh, and graduated in 2007, which is pretty much the worst time possible to uh, graduate with those degrees um, and uh, found my way, uh, you know, traveling um, and thought I would teach English. So I went moved to Japan, taught English there. Um, also did a lot of DJing and promotion there, which was uh, quite strange. But I um, after a year of teaching and uh, then a little bit of traveling afterwards, I decided to start my own English teaching company. And this is where I started to get really uh, much deeper into marketing, uh, or I didn't really see it as marketing. Um, I just saw it as how do we get people aware of, <laughs> uh, 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 of our product, which was not just English lessons, but also a... Um, you know, really a, a tech platform that allowed for in-browser video in 2010. Um, and also talking about community and trying to find out ways to, you know, broaden that awareness and find it in a low-cost scenario, which was really through advocacy. 
uh, or community. Um, as it turns out, uh, Japanese housewives uh, is a community uh, in, or you know, a, an audience, a group of people in Japan. It's very specific. That um, well, they talk a lot and they are <laughs> with each other, and they also um, do in enjoy English lessons, not necessarily just to learn English, but also to um, interact with each other on a, on a regular basis. So uh, I discovered that focusing on this particular uh, audience and their inclinations for community was um, a, a good idea. And we tried it and it actually had a huge amount of growth and it was very easy uh, for them to use and they didn't have to go anywhere, but they could still talk to each other um, uh, very easily. So that that's really the beginning of my marketing experience. Um, from there, went into publishing, uh, worked at several media, uh, you know, creative agencies, uh, started several other companies, um, and uh, wound my uh, wound up uh, now currently in a hybrid B two B, semi B two C, B two B two C sort of. <laughs> uh um place uh you know it's it's pretty interesting i it's one thing i find with marketers they very rarely have a straight line from oh i did a marketing degree and then i got a marketing job and then i became a, yeah. a marketer whatever. although i have to say from that description yours is definitely one of the the more interesting and and, and sinuous ways to do it, it a lot of things I could dig into there, but you know, one thing that that just struck me when you were talking about well, word of mouth and community, you know, that's real, that's big right now. You know, people are talking about oh, I gotta gotta have the community. You know, dark social I think is really just sort of another phrase for you know what we used to call word of mouth. Um, and it sounds like you tapped into that real early. Um, I'm just curious, you know, things that you learned from doing that, which which sounds like you sort of you just came across the idea right um no, nobody told you about it but you just made it happen do you see that sort of playing out in what you're doing now um in your current role or, or is that community very different so uh yeah great question i think the um it's not necessarily playing out in uh my current role um it is uh yeah it's quite difficult i think for uh airtame which uh you know the product uh itself really aligns itself to anyone who has a screen. Uh, that turns out to be a lot of people. Yeah, that's um, not very narrow. <laughs> uh, no, not, not very narrow. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, uh, getting deeper into our, actually our own database and our own metrics and things like that, finding out who um, are early uh, adopters, later adopters, laggards, thing, things of that nature um, will be useful, uh, but also finding out the personas that we have, which, uh, really turn out to be uh, a, a managerial type, um, IT managers, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, go figure. Surprise. Uh, and then uh, you know, creatives, um, uh, such as teachers, which, again, not such a big surprise, um, you know. Uh, but very uh, different, right? That's uh, a very different persona than an IT manager, I would imagine. Indeed. Um, very different uh industries uh, as well as their uh, product their product adoption you know when, uh, when they come in creatives um, generally will come in earlier on the the first half of the curve and the managers will come in in about the second um, they're looking for something sure bet um, and 
uh, yeah, a little bit more proven, uh, whereas creatives are a little bit more interested in exploring. Go figure. Well, and I guess, uh, yeah. Yeah, going from creatives to IT managers to to uh, teachers, teachers probably somewhere in between, I guess, on that on that spectrum. But yeah, that's that's some interesting personalities you're you're dealing with there. And you know, I think the the other challenge with communities, I'm sure you found this when you were first building it, is that is a long term play, right? That is not a hey, we we need to boost sales thirty percent this year. Oh, let's do it by community building, right? Community building is, I think, something you do let's say in the background as part of your three-year plan, five-year plan, whatever it may be. Um, I think it's really tough. Maybe certain products and services, you can do it quicker, but I always feel like that has to be a a background strategy, not the primary strategy. I I think generally speaking, yes, absolutely. Uh, It really depends on where you are uh, in uh, your company. If it's a very early uh, stage company, if you're really, you know, just starting up, community will actually probably be your uh, something you want to start on earlier. And it depends on what you mean by community. Um, simply by having a, um, a, I don't know, a WhatsApp chat, a chat uh, going with a few people that you know that are in your local industry uh, or, you know, local community that uh, are focused on this industry, whatever it is, um, getting that instant feedback from them um, is going to be really big and, and very useful to you. Um, so, I mean, that is a very small community uh, and that's okay, uh, but that can really go a long way, especially if you have a product that is working for them and then they go out and then advocate for you and draw in more people and potentially more business. Um, I mean, that's certainly the goal. Uh, so I think that uh, I've seen some people try to focus really early on that uh, community, but it, I, in my opinion, it needs to be very narrow. Um, otherwise, it's it's a lot of work and can be a lot of money to even try to get people to do it. And then it depends on what you really want to get out of them, uh, I, I think is another thing. Some people want uh, user-generated content, which is um, a fantastic thing. Uh, it's it's using your product. Uh, it, it's incredibly valuable. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know that that's a lot of work for people to do, and they have to yep. really love it. So you, you have and I to, think without you diving to them. too far down this rabbit hole, the other tough part is ROI, right? <clears throat> I mean, mm-hmm. a community is the sort of thing that there's, there's a level of belief to it, right? We know we need to build a community because of all the good things it'll bring, the word of mouth, the user-generated content. Um, you know, I've, I've seen companies use Slack channels really, really well for this, where, you know, the community actually sort of jumps in. You know, similar to, to a Reddit thread or something like that, right? Community jumps in and helps people out. So there's a lot to it, but yeah, if you're if you're in a company that's all about ROI, I think it's a it's a tough sell. Um, but then the other thing I just wanted to to uh, remark on, I guess, so you, you had a a degree in philosophy, you said. So <laughs> how has that or has that helped you in in any ways? You know, as you sort of built this journey. Uh, well, I think it certainly has, in, primarily in being able to critically analyze things. Um, you know, philosophy is a bunch of different ideas, uh, and you soak them in, you think about them, and you try to connect the dots. <clears throat> so, and and I, I think uh, that is a very beneficial thing in marketing because there is no silver bullet, there is no true answer um, to 
marketing. There's a certain level of logic uh, that you also have to have um, or, or you know, leverage in philosophy that, um, that is very valuable to this, I think, in, in terms of learning and adapting, uh, which things are changing very quickly uh, in the world of marketing and the world in general. So that, I think, is a very valuable skill. And I think that uh, a, a lot of people do not have that skill. Yeah, I think you're right. Learning and adapting for sure. I mean, if you think, well, you, you said your marketing journey started about 12 years ago. If you think about the marketing scene 12 years ago compared to now, half the stuff we're talking about didn't even exist exactly. 12, 12 years ago, right? So, um, yeah. So I guess talking about philosophies, um, funnel marketing is a philosophy, <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a lowercase p philosophy that a lot of people follow. Uh, you and I have talked about it in the past. Um, I, I'll admit I, I have mixed feelings on it. I, I think it's a great, it's a great way to explain to non-marketers what you're trying to achieve and why we're doing certain things. I think it can be useful early, early days when you're sort of building out a strategy to, to sort of, you know, keep you on track. The, the thing that has always concerned me about it is it, it is oversimplified in some ways. That's why it's so useful. Um, but that oversimplification I think can lead you into bad decisions when you sort of get locked into this idea of, oh, well, we're doing this for, you know, somebody who is absolutely in the, in the, you know, uh, decision phase. And therefore it needs to be exactly this when the reality is we all know nobody goes through, you know, the funnel, the, the, the way it's written. Um, so I support it in certain ways, but I'm also wary that it doesn't become sort of the straight jacket around which you build all of your marketing. Um, so I, I'm curious your your thoughts about it, and particularly in you know you mentioned the the role you're in at the moment is sort of B to B to C. So I'm sure that sort of impacts how you look at funnels as well. So I just just you know talk us through how you approach that. Um, yes. So the first two uh, comments, I, I think you are uh, definitely right to not have it uh, act as a straitjacket and limit. Um, your efforts uh, is is definitely uh, something very important uh, to uh, take into account there. But my approach uh, and the reason why I use them is because, or it is to find a way to measure what you're doing, uh, and across the uh, you know across the full spectrum of uh, marketing. And what do I mean by the full spectrum? Um, you know, from social media campaigns, which are generally uh, awareness-based, um, they, they sometimes convert people directly. Um, but uh, finding a way, again, to consider all of these different mediums and efforts and map out what are the goals? Ultimately, at the end of the day, of course, you want more revenue, but okay, so how do we get there? What uh, what steps does one generally take? What is the, in the, what the project management parlance was the, the, the critical path? What is the critical path to a sale? Uh, and, and then hopefully retention and then advocacy, which then circles back into that growth. Um, so it, it's about mapping that out uh, so that you have that critical path. Um, from there, we also have to remember that, uh, people do, um, not necessarily follow that exact path. They may skip paths, uh, or, 
they I, I wouldn't say uh, skip paths or skip phases necessarily, um, but I would say that uh, they may not follow that that rigid structure which says oh social media post then i go to website then i go fill out form then i buy product um this is <laughs> uh not necessarily the case and a funnel uh that <clears throat> marketers usually use are in 2d that's how they can present it right. um and in fact it's more of a 3d uh it's really a uh, marketing tornado <laughs> if you will. It's a marketing cone. Co um, causing a ton of destruction as it goes? It, yes. And that is very difficult. It's it's more difficult to visualize. It's certainly more difficult to communicate within a uh, company, uh, large or small. And uh, I think that for some people, it can be even hard, difficult to understand uh, that there's multiple steps, uh, you know, a minimum five different phases in almost any funnel. Uh, so even in 2D, it can be quite uh, complex, uh, and it becomes even more complex as you start to flesh it out and understand uh, what works for your business. Um, but I do, in general, use funnels specifically to map out that critical path so that we can have some way of measuring what's happening, uh, understanding that, uh, you know, for the most part, Nobody's going to follow that exact path, but you can glean enough information to say, hey, we have a problem with uh, product adoption. Uh, we get people, you know, tons of people signing up. Uh, let's say we've got a freemium product, uh, whatever it is. Um, you've got, uh, you know, uh, a thousand people that sign up. Um, and then, uh, you know, let's say you've got a good conversion rate. They try it once. Um, so you get a thousand people and then 900 people, uh, try it once. That's, that's a great, uh, um, conversion rate. Uh, but then after two months, you only have 10 people that are still using it. That in that funnel, uh, alone, you would say, Hey, we have a problem with adoption. There's something they're not continually or habitually using this product. Right. So that's, uh, it, it's a good way to find out what the problems are, uh, and then, uh, and where you need to focus your efforts. And then as, um, as, so as goals or, or KPIs go through that, to your mind, is it the conversion from one stage to the next that's the most important KPIs to track or are there other things that you look at? So, the, well, to start, definitely the, the uh, really that conversion KPI between phases is ultimately the most important. Uh, some people would say, oh, well, uh, you know, I mean, just as an example, um, you know, what is the uh, goal for a growth marketing manager? Well, they say, oh, well, you know, traffic or, you know, lead generation or this and that. It's like, no, actually, the ultimate KPI is revenue. Uh, sure. <laughs> like that's that yep. is uh, the goal at the end of the day. And um, yeah, so with that said, there definitely are leading indicators within each phase uh, that will say, you know, that, that lead up to it. A good example uh, are, you know, top of funnel ads. Uh, you've got, let's say we've got Google search um, and somebody clicks your ad and you've got a certain um, number of impressions of that ad. You have a uh, number, you know, clicks, uh, all of that. That has an effect uh, on that. But at the end of the day, um, you are looking actually at the 
number of people who go to wherever you want them to go, let's say the website, and then engage in some way uh, and not bounce. Uh, right. Say you want to see the people that are actually doing something on your website. Um, so all of those things uh, that I mentioned before, click rate specifically, uh, we'll go with that uh, for, for an ad, would be a leading indicator to how well things are going in your awareness phase. So one thing I've seen with, you know, if, if you really have detailed out the funnel in a lot of detail and have these metrics is, is keeping track of all this. So, you know, do you have dashboards that you use? Is there a particular app software? Is it Google Sheets? Like how, how do you track all this stuff and then report on it? Yeah, um, I, well, I think there's there's a lot of ways uh, to do this. Um, as they say, uh, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat, right? Um, <laughs> lots of ways to do this. I mean, the simplest certainly is uh, first mapping that out and then uh, simply tracking it on a uh, spreadsheet is fine. Um, if you want to get more uh, advanced and make it uh, look prettier, you could use... Uh, Google's Data Studio, uh, so many different ways to do it. But anyway, you can create funnels uh, quite easily in Google Analytics 4 and uh, with that and have hard set rules uh, for how you want it. Um, and I think that that's a good start for people that are uh, fairly new to it, but uh, have a certain level of understanding uh, of analytics. Um, that's part of the issue. How much are you willing to pay for, right? Because there's some great analytics packages out there but it's going to cost you. So um, the uh, going back to the sort of how you set up the funnels. So you've worked in B2B, you've worked in B2C, you're now B2B2C. Um, any differences you see in how you work with the funnels between those those different sort of go-to markets? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. I think it's, it's interesting primarily because uh, I don't necessarily see that... Um, I see things a little differently. It's not just about the funnels, but I think it comes down to uh, something a little bit more fundamental, possibly philosophical, uh, <laughs> uh, of how uh, marketing works. Um, and I would like to say that really all of this is marketing to people in and of itself. Right. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point philosophical or otherwise um people are people so uh, to me it's always been a case of typically the b2b is a is a longer consideration cycle obviously depending on, on exactly what you're talking about um whereas consumer it, it, in yes. most cases is 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 relatively short maybe not for big ticket yes. items but for most things it is so i think in b2c you tend to move through those phases a lot quicker um yes. and there's less there's generally less importance to somebody on that decision, right? Like a B2B decision, it's going to, could impact your career, livelihood, promotion, whatever it may be. Consumer, typically it's like, all right, you'll kick yourself if you made the wrong decision and then, and then you move on. Right. So, I, so I've, I've always felt that, yes, it's a similar, similar funnel, similar journey. Um, just sort of the, uh, the amount of time spent in each stage is probably, uh, uh, probably varies. It, it certainly does. Yes. Uh, I think, I mean, to simplify it here, <clears throat> B2C seems to be uh, much more emotional uh, in awareness and consideration, yeah. uh, whereas B2C is definitely more analytical. Uh, and uh, there is a deeper consideration phase uh, in B2B. 
It, uh, and as you had mentioned, big t- ticket items, you know, if I'm going to buy a $30,000 camera lens, uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to yeah. do my research. For sure. And at that level, yeah. you're effectively acting as a business anyway. Um, yeah. And uh, so I think that, uh, yes, there definitely are um, funnels that focus on more on emotion or, or I shouldn't say funnels that do. It's really the business itself. And I think it's with any of these things, the basic principles apply. And then you just work out how to how to apply them to to what it is. And that's the fun bit of marketing, with. in my opinion. It's it's a it's a puzzle for uh, each piece of uh, industry or each uh, yeah e- e- each audience and each product. I agree. I mean, I I've been lucky in in my career. I've worked in a bunch of different industries, um, and so yeah, yeah, it's always different. You're learning something. You're adjusting. You're adapting. Um, keeps me on my toes. Yes, it was good. Um, so talking of adapting, uh, you may have heard people have been talking about uh, AI, chat GPT, how, how this is all going to impact marketing. I'm kind of sick of, <laughs> of reading everybody's take on LinkedIn, if I'm honest. Um, but I, I thought what might be interesting to, to get your viewpoint. You know, let's, let's move beyond sort of that initial first week hot takes from everybody. Um, and since you're very close to the world of, of search and PPC and all of that good stuff. Any thoughts on on how AI and or ChatGPT and and its competitors are going to start having an impact on search over the next few months, next couple of years? Yeah, um, I mean, my first uh, take is that it will definitely change the way that search engines collect uh, results. Um, and they, you know, I think uh, there's been a lot of talk about how Google is panicking uh, about this. Um, I, they're probably fairly concerned um, that uh, there's a tool that effectively doesn't provide the search results. It effectively provides an answer. Right. Uh, whether that answer is correct is another question, whether you should believe it, which I, you know, hot take here, do not believe what a chat <laughs> bot tells you 100 um, it, yep. it does not provide sources um it, it doesn't <laughs> and right. it won't anytime soon uh you know and i think that that's a really important thing do not take these as face value um so i think it's going to affect search uh for the time being negatively i think a lot of marketers may not be skilled enough to understand that uh you know using content generated by a chat bot is uh not meant is not quality content um and quality by meaning it could be completely false uh what the response is right um so i think it you know chatbots really uh it it has two pieces to it and how it's going to affect search one is uh that uh, people may use it for a content generation uh tool uh which is not what i would consider using it for. I, I think that that's a very poor decision or idea to, to do. Reason being is that um, it is a machine that uh, is creating uh, something that is supposed to be for people, but uh, really other machines can tell uh, <laughs> that a machine wrote it. Um, so I, I think that that's a really important thing. Um, so uh, I think Google uh, will definitely be able to see that and uh, downrank or uh, you know something along those lines, basically deprioritize that sort of content. Yeah. So that's one piece to it. Um, the other 
is that, uh, of course, the idea that um, chatbots will effectively replace search um, by simply providing the answers. I think we're a long way. We're a fair uh, way uh, um, away from that. Um, so uh, I'm not too worried about that. But the way that you can leverage uh, chatbots is by asking it uh, specific questions um, to produce uh, some level of content that is meant for a machine, not a person. Um, and this is the technical aspect of SEO, uh, mm. effectively, um, meta, meta tags, uh, meta descriptions, things of that nature, where it is a machine that understands how search machines understand uh, and read search. So um, use the machines to talk to machines. That's, uh, that's what I would do. Uh, and that's that's how I think that it will uh, greatly affect it. So smart people will be able to leverage these tools um, and improve their search. That that is an interesting take. I haven't heard that angle before. But use machines to talk to machines has a has a certain uh, poetic feel yeah. to it. I think. <laughs> Going back to your point about um, you know, search engines could use it to to serve up the answer. Um, it, it, it sort of strikes me that that's what Google has been trying to do for the last few years, that it used to be, as we all know, right, it would, it would send you to a bunch of pages, you go do your own research, and they've been getting more into this idea of we're going to serve up the one answer for you, which actually makes sure that you don't go off to somebody else's website. And it's, it's caused a lot of problems with companies because they're saying, hey, they're basically taking my data and showing it as their own, whether it's you know, booking flights or giving you weather information. So Google have been trying to get to this to give you sort of the golden answer, but you have the other stuff below it. And in most cases, I think to your other point, you get the um, the source so you know where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but it's almost now as though it's working against Google because now it's like, oh, well, they've, they've started to train us to expect the perfect answer at the top. And now somebody else's chatbot is maybe going gonna, is, is gonna to do that for them. So... I'm guessing they're having to sort of reassess I, and, and maybe it'll end up sort of diverging and there'll be different search engines for different things. Like there's one that you know is going to be just going out there and you're pulling together the, the, their idea of the perfect answer, which may or may not be right. And then there'll be others where it's okay, you're going to get the source and you're going to be able to read through and what have you. So may, maybe it will lead to, um, you know, different, different engines for different purposes. My know. gut feeling is that, uh, Google's AI um, and machine learning is far and away better than anything else on the market. Um, and it's probably so powerful that they're they're really trying to figure out, uh, is the world ready for this? Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and are they ready to release it? The answer is no, they are not ready to release it, I think. Um, and they don't need to, right? right. I mean, they, they, they can't afford to to take their time. Um, going back to, you know, early on you said about, well, you've got to be adaptable and things change. When you're talking about how Google sort of goes and finds the, the golden answer or whatever, it makes me think about Wikipedia, right? Because early days of Wikipedia, it was sort of a joke. It's like, ah, you can't trust that. You don't know where it's come from. And then people started to realize actually because of the way it's put together and managed, actually it does become pretty good. And then it was... And Google searches, Wikipedia would would 
quite often be the top one. And I remember at one point the marketing challenge was always, okay, we got to beat Wikipedia on whatever, whatever our big search terms are. Let's make sure we get above Wikipedia. I don't think anybody says that anymore, right? You, you can't, you can't get ahead of Wikipedia unless you're so narrow that, that it's not on there. So, you know, it's part of that evolution, right? Eventually Wikipedia won't be because there will be other data sets and what have you. So, um, you know, I think that's, this is just another step on the way of it, but, but I have to agree with you. I mean, Google have been looking at this for a really long time and have a lot of very smart people on it. So I certainly wouldn't count them out just yet. Oh yeah. Uh, certainly not. Yeah. We'll, we'll see uh, some very interesting things as we go along. Uh, I, I find it also interesting, you know, a little bit of a side, uh, uh, you know, little, little bit of a tangent here. Um, the, one of I think it was a fire developer or engineer that was working specifically on the machine learning and uh, Google chatbot, whatever it was internally, um, you know, called internally. Uh, but he was convinced that uh, the chatbot that they had created was sentient. Um, right. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to say, oh, it's definitely sentient, man. It's they're coming for us. Um, but uh, I think that uh, it it. You got to wonder what is that definition of sentience. Um, uh, I think there's some really interesting things uh, that happen here, um, and I think Bing's uh, or you know Microsoft Bing's uh, chatbot uh, started to talk back to users, um, and really interesting stuff. Uh, and even though it was uh, you know really that uh that makes it seem like a chatbot is alive uh and because we naturally anthropomorphize uh the things that we see um because that's where we're human because we're humans go yeah go do. figure right we, we see we see other humans in uh other uh other things um so, I, I did yeah. i did read some of those and I, I think the one that got the biggest coverage was the new york times reporter who got into this whole discussion with the Bing chatbot and the chatbot decided it wanted to marry the reporter. And it was really weird. But if you went through and read it, you know, the reporter, and the reporter's just doing his job, right? But the reporter asked very strange questions, very leading questions. You could see it sort of going down that that rabbit hole. Um, it's not the sort of thing that you or I would do if we were trying to find out, you know, what's what's the best way to get from new york to to dc right which is which is what we're going to be using these things for much more so i thought it was very interesting and and then being put um guardrails around it i think they limited it to five queries because it also seemed to be like the the longer the conversation went on the more it sort of yeah more went off this, the rails <laughs> this fantasy thing but but it, i i think it, at the very least it made people stop and think about okay what what is this and god we are in we're in such early days of this it's it it's going to be really interesting i think i think so um but for the the, the time being it is uh, really important to see uh, or you know understand that uh, uh, people should be creating content for people uh for the time being uh you yeah. know un until uh our machine overlords uh you know do actually take over um but uh, until then uh you know create content for people and use machines to uh create content for machines I like um that. and that's uh that's the simple uh that's as condensed as i can make it <laughs> well we'll get that printed on a t-shirt for you so yeah. you can uh spread the word so 
this is called the marketing mix. People wonder why, and I have a I have a bunch of answers for it. But one one particular answer is uh, over the years, I've always found a great place to have interesting conversations about marketing is over a cocktail or two. Um, so, last question or last significant question: um, What is your favorite cocktail? What do you like to mix up? Yeah. Um, so, I. Um... I like something with a bit of citrus in it. Um, yeah, I think uh, I always have. So, uh, I mean, an easy go-to is the margarita, but uh, something that, uh, you know, I, I created, um, I called the Citron de Charles. De Charles. Uh, <laughs> Very fancy. <laughs> oh, yes, it's French, but uh, specifically because I use Orangina. Uh, uh, Less fancy. <laughs> and, and, I mean, right? And it's sometimes hard to find. Um uh, but, uh, I honestly, uh, it, it's really my take on the screwdriver. Um, and it, uh, you know, you put a bunch of ice, a fair amount of vodka. I wouldn't say a bunch of vodka, but, uh, you know, um, and, uh, mix that in with, um, certainly lemon, uh, would be clear, have a nice, uh, wedge of lemon in there and, uh, orangina. And it's a sweet mix. It's got the bubbles in it and, uh, that, uh, yeah, it's quite refreshing. Nice. So, I'm uh, gonna have to give that a try. It's uh, it's a winner. It also, as you as you thought about it, it reminds me of my childhood because when I was a kid, Orangina you couldn't buy. I grew up in the UK. You couldn't you couldn't buy it in England. It was a French product. So, but if you went on a school trip to France, you know, suddenly Orangina was everywhere, and it was sort of this big treat. So, um, hmm, adding some vodka and some ice to it definitely sounds like a treat. I will. Uh, I'll be trying one of those out. Um, I like. I have one more question for you. Um, okay. So if people if people want to uh, find out more about Charlie, um, and maybe DJ Charlie, maybe marketing Charlie, one oh, one yeah. of the many Charlies out there, uh, what's the best place for people to to connect with you? Uh, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, it's LinkedIn dot uh, com slash Charles Karpiuk. That's K A R P I U K. Um, and, uh, yeah, that would be the easiest way. Uh, feel free to connect with me, um, message me, uh, disagree with me and I'll, uh, I might fight you. I might not. Um, we'll see. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the easiest way, uh, for the time being. All right. Perfect. And I, I'll put that link in the show notes so that you can track Charlie down and argue with him on all things growth marketing. So Charlie, thank you very much for, for taking some time out to, to chat with me today. Really appreciate it. And um, I look forward to talking with you again in the future. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Mix. If you have suggestions or would like to be a guest on the show, visit our website at themarketingmixpodcast.com. In my consulting practice, I help founder-led companies and small businesses punch above their weight providing the marketing strategy and know-how needed to take your company to the next level. More details are at solentstrategies.com. See you next time on The Marketing Mix.